This is Ernesto Falcone. I'm a candidate for the California State Senate in the East Bay, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 334 for July 24th, 2023. As promised, we've got a great interview for you today with Ernesto Falcone. He is with the EFF, but today he is representing himself as a state Senate candidate in California. We're going to talk about some policy stuff around privacy, mostly, and talk about how kind of how the sausage is made uh, in terms of laws and regulations around this stuff and why we don't currently really have good ones, at least at the federal level here in the United States. But California is actually leading the way. We'll hit on some familiar themes, things that I talk about quite often on the show, but I always like to get the opinions of other folks who are actually out there doing work in this area, and in, in this case, actually driving policy. We'll talk about the Earn It Act and, and some of the proposals for trying to fight CSAM or child sexual abuse material. We'll talk about big tech and how their lobbying affects our ability to get some of this stuff done. We'll talk about end-to-end encryption and uh, the constant fight for keeping that from getting backdoored. And of course, we'll ask Ernesto a little bit about his campaign and what he's hoping to do for his uh, folks out in California. So Ernesto did want me to make sure that I added this, that all the views and opinions and statements that he expresses today are just Ernesto's as a candidate for office. And even though he does work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation currently, uh, these opinions are not theirs, just his. We do briefly, or actually, I think it was me that said it. I throw out the term BIPA, uh, and that is the Biometric Information Privacy Act in Illinois. Now, uh, one quick note before we get to the interview. I have finally officially launched another Dragon Challenge Coin promotion for new patrons. Stay tuned after the interview for uh, all those details. Ernesto actually just joined the Five Timers Club. <laughs> if you've ever watched Sunday Night Live, that's a big deal on Sunday Night Live. Uh, Ernesto, if I could give you a really cool smoking jacket with the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons logo on it, I would do it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we've had him on several times before, and I'm glad to have him back. So let's get right to the interview with Ernesto Falcon. Ernesto Omar Falcone is Senior Legislative Counsel at the Electronic Frontier Foundation with a primary focus on intellectual property, open internet issues, broadband access, and competition policy. And he is now currently running for State Senate in California. Welcome back to the show, Ernesto. Hey, thanks for having me. Before we get into the policy stuff, tell me like what, you know, what seat are you running for and what drove you to run for office? You know, what are and then, you know, maybe what are some of your top policy positions that my audience might be interested in? Yeah, certainly. I um so I've worked in the legislative space, uh, both in federally and the state for almost about 20 years now. And the the thing with California and our state legislature is that we have what are called term limits. Uh, mm. They're 12 years and they just started kicking in. About a third of the legislature termed out last session uh, in 2022 and the next third is terming out uh, next year. And so whenever it's an open seat and uh, if you're you know, a first time candidate or someone who's interested in running for office, that's that's the best time to try simply because there's no there's no incumbent. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to take uh, the work I do in public interest and advocacy and kind of return to public service and um, and do that from a role of an elected office. I uh, have found gratifying the work of serving others, uh, of helping others, and I've I'm just interested in kind of taking that to the to the next stage and you know representing my community directly. Uh, I think I could do a good job of it. I think I'm I'm very I have a, an enormous amount of uh, background in legislative coalition building, yeah. moving laws, stopping bad laws. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a lot of big challenges we face in the area. Um, so this is the East Bay. Uh, so that's Oakland, Berkeley, El Cerrito, which is my town. Richmond, those are kind of the, the main four, but there's there's several several towns along the water of mm -hmm. east of San Francisco. Uh, the number is Senate District 7. It used to be 9. A lot of people get this confused mm. because even if you search on Google, you'll find the wrong number because the state has done a bad job of updating those numbers, but it is Senate <laughs> District 7 East Bay. And uh, it is currently occupied by State Senator Nancy Skinner, who's done some phenomenal work on criminal justice, you know, it, you know was a big supporter of net neutrality, a uh, big supporter of privacy, 
and uh, currently is our chair of our budget committee, which handles kind of the big decisions about how we spend uh, funding and, and has been a good defender of the $7 billion broadband infrastructure fund that I got to work on and pass with a coalition in California because now we're, we're facing a deficit and there's a lot of pressure on cuts and, you know, I'm, I'm counting on, you know, I, I can have strong reliance on my state senator, you know, on our last term to defend those programs because, you know, any of the digital divide is a huge issue and it's an important, it's an important one. So she, she leaves in 2024 and that opens the seat. There are, you know, several candidates in, in it and, um, you know, for me, it is a matter of, you know, the four issues, I think the four big umbrella issues out there, it's too expensive to live here right mm-hmm. now. The cost of living in, in the San, the Bay Area is the highest in the entire country. And that isn't because the Bay Area is unique. It's because we have really bad policies on building homes mm. and uh, construction. So on average, it takes several years to build a house in this area. The national average is 12 months. We need to get to the national average because we are just not growing fast enough for the population that lives here. And so if you're a low income person, a middle income person, you're commuting 90 minutes to work, maybe two hours at this point, because housing is too expensive in the Bay Area of, of San Francisco, even on the Southeast and North Bay, and you're, you're just push, being pushed further and further out. So it's a huge loss of quality of life, uh, enormous pressure on incomes. Uh, 80% of us don't even have access to affordable housing anymore at this mm-hmm. point. That's a, a statistic from the Federal Reserve. And it's uh, if we want California to be a place where anyone can live in regards to income level, we gotta we have to fix that. So that's that's the biggest issue for me. Wow. Uh, I would say the other issues are our public education uh, system is struggling. Uh, students are behind by a number of one or two years now because of the pandemic and the length of school closures California under underwent. We we kept our doors closed longer than most other states. I think mm. the longest of any state, and that was a mistake because. Now the kids who are are trying to catch up, particularly low income kids, you know the reading proficiency levels are are way at the bottom. Um, mm. Oakland, for example, reading proficiency, math proficiency is uh, about two out of ten kids right now. So serious state of, of emergency on public education. Uh, I think the state government has to do a whole lot more to help families. Uh, and, I, and this is an emotionally motivating issue for me. My my son, you know, didn't get kindergarten because the school was closed for the whole year, mm-hmm. and um, I had to teach him how to read myself. And so, going through the experience of privately tutoring him, getting him caught up, he he's in great shape. But then I look at that and I go, well, I'm a public interest lawyer. I've got flexible hours. I've got capacity to do this. What is a person who has to, you know, drive that 90 minute two hour commute? You know, who has to work in person because their job requires them to be there physically? They, they are in serious trouble without more help. And so I, that's the population of parents that I care an enormous amount for their future and for their kids' future. And so on public education, I really want to you know, leverage some of the stuff we did on broadband. We can give people, you know, give kids, if you go to public school in California, there's no reason we can't just give you a free computer and give you free internet at home and, and really give you access to uh, a whole host of free services to help parents catch kids up, you know, provide free tutoring, uh, you know, remotely there, there's more we can do. We just haven't, we haven't really put the focus on it yet. And then on, on other issues, you know, and issues I think near and dear to the audience here, consumer privacy and kind of the future of uh, consumer rights. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we are, we are the hot, you know, the center of the tech world, right? This is the Bay area, Silicon Valley and folks who work in San Francisco, folks who work in tech live in the East Bay. And what we do shapes the world of technology and, and what you do. You know, artificial intelligence now is like the next the next horizon on on things to care about. And I think there is there is a lot of good we can do with technology so long as we have the right framework and guardrails and protections for users. I subscribe to the belief that consumer rights and empowerment are not mutually exclusive with innovation. And um, I think a lot of policymaking and legislators, unfortunately, are, you know, exploiting the fear of tech, mm. exploiting it for their own political gain. You know, I think there are legitimate concerns, particularly on privacy sure. that exist. But then, you know, why isn't, and, you know, we should, we should talk to this, but like, well, why aren't we passing laws in to fix that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's because the point is not to pass the laws. The point is to fundraise and to grandstand and uh, not solve these issues in perpetuity. And so I think that is uh, unfortunate. That's not the way I want not the way I want to be in terms of a legislative office. I want to really tackle these issues right away if, I, if we're selected by the people of the East Bay. And then climate change. You know, I think uh, you know, climate change affects all of us. And I, I articulate 
you know, we as the East Bay can, can, can address and fight, do our part to fight climate change really in the, the way we commute and, and the, tra- the traffic jams that we deal with in this area. You'll never build enough roads to move people efficiently. Um, mm-hmm. We have to actually rethink how we do work, mm-hmm. uh, rethink how we move ourselves for conducting business uh, and recreation. And, you know, if, if essentially I would say deprioritize the highway, you know, which is like our main artery into the, the Bay Area and out. And start thinking of alternative ways we can, you know, promote economic productivity, recreation, or ability to, um, you know, just live our lives without creating such a large uh, imprint on our on our globe. Um, yeah. CO2 emissions, the one of the largest contributors is is transit, cars and trucks getting stuck in traffic for a long period of time. So the fewer, you know, I want people to get out of traffic jams, right? I want people to have to deal with that a whole lot less. Remote work where we're feasible, uh, that's where broadband becomes very important. And, you know, I want employers who, you know, be, to be rewarded for reducing the number of times they have to make people drive into work uh, mm. if, if feasible. Well, California has been a leader among U.S. states and even ahead of the federal government, you know, on privacy and personal data regulations, as well as, you know, consumer and environmental stuff. Uh, I'm curious to, if you have a, a theory as to why that might be. But also, I'd like to dig into a couple of particular ones like the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act and the CPRA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the California Privacy uh, Privacy Rights Act that were pretty impactful. Um, so I'd be curious, maybe give us a quick overview for those. And they've been around for about three years now. I'm curious as to whether you think that they have lived up to expectations. Yeah, I um, more, there's more to be done. And I think it is very, you have to be very careful about what we do here um, because the you know, the industry is structured in a way that um, has relied on the, the, you know, the non-existence of privacy regulation, but that can't, that can't persist. I mean, mm-hmm. that has to change. 90% of people, you know, there's a Pew study that shows, you know, almost all of us feel we have no control over our information when we use the internet or use technology. And that actually has a very, um, you know, I think a lot of people who are in the, in the business of, you know, data, data invasive practices, um, are not realizing how much that is kind of polluting the ecosystem. There is a, a good study by the Department of Commerce that showed that when people don't trust the internet, right, or don't trust the technology, they use it less. Mm-hmm. And so all these benefits and 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 these tend to be marginal communities. So so your you know your elderly, uh, your people with of limited income, you know, who don't have regular access to technology and and are not convinced that they need to because of all the things they're scared about in terms of once they hmm. use it. So we are actually making it worse off for, you know, ubiquitous usage of, of the advancement technology. If we make it seem that it's just a giant data harvesting um, practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, you know, my campaign's philosophy is, is giving people power. It's actually like kind of the the slogan of you know I'm running to I'm running to give people power uh, over all these things you know cost of living uh, what we can do about climate our education and in this instance for technology I want people to feel that they are in control of the technology that they're the recipients of the of the benefits of innovation and not that they are the product which yeah. is an often um, a, a feeling that most people have yeah so there, CCBA and and CPRA have done enormous foundational work. However, I think the fundamental, do you as an individual feel like you have the power over your personal information to decide what happens with it at this point? I think the answer is no. And I think there is more that could be done. So for example, in Illinois, there is a law there that requires you to have permission before you scan biometric information, your irises, fingerprints. Yep. That's right. And the you know, and, and California does not have that law, you know, and, and so it isn't like what I'm suggesting is some radical rethinking of privacy. The, this law already exists. It's just the people of Illinois have the right and the people of mm-hmm. California don't. And so right. I think just, you know, expanding that, it has direct implications on what happens federally down the line. But it, it is the right, I think it's the right structure where you as the user have the control over what happens to your information rather than you're just trying to figure out what the heck is happening in the world for you. Yeah. I just actually recently saw an article about how people who have been given blood samples as part of a, a, a police process or something, uh, those samples were being held uh, for years and used in investigations to get DNA samples years later. There's a lot. Yes, it's lot. exactly that's exactly the problem. It's the it's the aftermarket uses, the secondary uses that you never signed up for. That is the source of the lack of feeling of control and and the power I want to give people is 
what you signed up for when you agree to the thing you did, right, with a product or the device or the technology company you're signing up with a service, that's all they're allowed to do with it. Uh, if they want to do something else, they have to come back to you. And I think it is just not a radical notion. We do that for lots of other forms of privacy. We just haven't done it for personal information in the way that uh, exists today. The, the Europeans already do this now. Yeah. So it isn't like we're changing the landscape. We're just making sure, you know, Californians and, and to be frank, whatever happens in California affects the, the remaining 49 states eventually because the size of the economy of California tends to you know, require companies to adhere to the California right. standard simply because it's just more efficient. There's no reason to not adopt the fourth largest economy rules as your blanket rules uh, and then take care of everything for you rather than, you know, try to distinguish, you know, Illinois and Hawaii and Texas, you know, from California at the end right. of the day. Right. For me, it was always the concept of like a data fiduciary. It's like, I want, if you're going to take my data, then you should be using it primarily, actually solely as far as I'm concerned, or at least primarily for my benefit and not for yours, at least not without permission. I mean, obviously I want you to make money because I want you to stay in business. But other than yep. that, you know, the data you collect should be used for the purposes that we agreed upon originally. And that's it for my, you know. Well, and this is where artificial intelligence and kind of, you know, understanding it as a tool to empower individuals is very valuable. Um, you know, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of like, is it going to be C-3PO or the Terminator future, right? Like, <laughs> and, right. and I don't think it's that real. I don't think that's really a, 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 a correct argument or a correct right. way to think about the future here. It is these are tools that enhance us to do things that we couldn't do, you know, simply through our own effort. And I think... A data fiduciary and you know, artificial intelligence kind of serving as your agent to protect your information, to kind of set the rules of, of uh, agreements with, with thousands of different internet companies and, and things you do online. I think there's real potential there. I think there's an awful lot of power where if you were to give in, you know, imagine given a, uh, an AI agent of sorts that's responsible for protecting your privacy, but you, you, you tell it what it needs to do to protect your privacy in terms of what, you know, what terms of service you want to agree to and which ones you want to skip. Rather than you have to click accept, accept, and read every single thing you see out there, which you can't, you know, the, a lot of these agreements when you sign up things yep. are, <laughs> yeah, would take more than a lifetime, a human life right. to read all of it. But an AI tool can do it for you, right? And if you just tell it, here's how I want my information protected, and here's what I'm okay with in terms of how my information is treated, and you start automating that at scale, you start, you know, getting some real control over what happens next. So I actually, I'm an optimist about where AI can go and what it can do for user power. I am worried about the rush for you know, regulation in the space simply because it's it's still a very nascent market and you traditionally don't regulate things that aren't um, very old and established. You know, we regulate telecom and medicine and food and things that have been around for centuries, but right, we right. don't we don't regulate the thing that's brand new. Well. You alluded to this earlier, and I think you had a really interesting point, but I want to dig into this a little bit more. Why Why is it that you don't think that we can seem to pass a consumer-centric federal data privacy law in the U.S.? We've tried. We've Some of them will come up. But I was getting hopeful recently because it seems like both parties were really having a lot of animosity toward big big tech, you know, for, for different reasons. But they were both kind of in a regulatory mood and, and, and wanting to rein in some of these practices, it seems like. But it, nevertheless, it, it seems like we can't agree on anything. So... You alluded to the fact that you think that maybe the, there's a lot more money to be made off the problem than the solution. Are there also, is it the standard lobbying thing? Is there just a lot of money being thrown around for campaign finance that from these big tech companies that are influencing the laws? So it, it is not just big tech. It is every industry that uses your information, right? So big tech is a big part of it, of mm -hmm. course. But there are so many companies that want, you know, loose, lax rules for your personal information. So I, I would say, you know, coming to my point earlier, you know, is personal information and kind of the movement and trading of personal information online a nascent industry? Heck no. I mean, that's a multi-trillion dollar industry now. So we mm -hmm. should think about how to regulate it and, and advance user rights in a way that recognizes the the need. So the problem here is is this. I mean, and I think Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee is a, a perfect example of this, of how the money affects the policy and, and yet the voter sentiment is just completely in a different place. So she was the lead author. Well, let me go back. I step actually. So 
the last year of the Obama administration, the Federal Communications Commission passes one of the best internet service provider privacy rules on the books. Mm-hmm. And they did it right at the end of the term. Uh, and then Trump wins. And so Trump installs Ajit Pai as FCC chair. And the Congress flips to the Republican side. And so, you know, AT&T and Comcast you'll realize they have this unique opportunity to use what's called the Congressional Review Act, which is this legislative vehicle to reverse a regulation on an expedited basis. So it takes like 20 days to vote this kind of stuff through, which is very fast for legislation uh, in D.C. So they convince the Republican leadership and Trump that this is some Obama era rule that's detrimental to companies and we should undo it and effectively get the United States Congress to repeal a massive privacy rule. I remember that. So like the last... Yeah. The last vote Congress has ever done on privacy was to repeal privacy. Like There has never been a vote in favor of privacy to date still. And that was, you know, almost five years ago now. Right. So, you know, they convinced these senators and these members of the House that um, it's unfair that we as ISPs, AT&T and Comcast and Verizon are regulated on privacy in a way that Google and Facebook are not. And to level the pay- playing field uh, in the market, we should be able to compete with them on how much information we can you know, obtain of people and monetize and all that. And like the natural correct inclination would have been the other way, which is like, oh, well, we should just regulate all the companies equally rather than let's just get rid of all the <laughs> privacy rules in, in the first place. So this was a very unpopular move. The Senate passed it barely and the House passed it as quick as they could because they were losing House Republicans on it. You know, I think about 15 or 16 House Republicans voted against. If we were able to get it to 20, and I and I remember this in my, you know, during my time at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which was, you know, we led a call campaign and I, I think we generated, you know, 15 to 20,000 phone calls in a matter of a week or two, which is wow. like insanely fast. Yeah. But the, you know, the news was hitting the headlines and papers and, and talk shows and you know, late night you know, TV and stuff of the Senate repeal privacy and allowing companies to you know, look into very sensitive information about you to sell it. Mm-hmm. And they were losing Republicans, but they moved it fast enough. This is the advantage of the expedited process. They moved it fast before they lost too many. And so they got it done with a margin of four votes in the House, and then Trump signed it. And so that was led by Senator Marsha Blackburn, who you know, really got an enormous amount of criticism from her voters back home. Hmm. And so then she turns around and introduces a bill called the Browser Act, which was about a month after she just repealed privacy, just to now <laughs> hold this position of like, oh, I'm always been in favor of privacy regulation. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's literally a law that would reverse the very vote that she already had, thanks to the largesse of major ISPs who donate an enormous amount of money to most people in Congress, almost everyone in Congress, to be honest. Hmm. And... You know, and it would restore the exact same rules for them that they just repealed and also apply to Google and Facebook and other you know, big tech companies. And so, you know, initially, I don't think anyone really thought that she was serious about this bill. And I would say, given that it's been many years since and there's never been a vote on it and there's never been other than a lot of talk and a lot of press releases and a lot of pointing to, you know, I have this bill. The actual progress of establishing privacy rules federally continues to linger. And this is where the states are extremely important because whereas in Congress, and I, and I know both systems very well, I've worked in both in almost a 10 years each, you know, 20 years total, it's very easy to make something disappear in Congress. Uh, mm. It's very easy never to have to vote on something. Mm. Whereas a lot of states, uh, including California, have processes where you can force a vote on a, on a topic. So, you know, you basically have to show your cards. If you're a legislator and you're saying, oh, yeah, I'm totally in favor of privacy. It's like, oh, well, I have a privacy bill. Let's vote on it. <laughs> it's very hard in California to just never take that vote. You have to take at least some votes on the on the front end. There are some methods in Sacramento that bills get buried. And this is normally in there's basically a series of votes that have to happen. And it's usually like the third third to last vote. Then suddenly there's a process where um, before it gets to the floor, it can just disappear and run out the clock. And a lot of bills have been killed that way where everyone says they're in favor for it. They voted for it. And then suddenly it never gets to the finish line. And it, it is, you know, it is an unfortunate part of the process, but it is also why I think I could be very effective as a legislator simply because I'm um, well connected with a lot of the movement groups and the grassroots groups. And I have no fear of being vocal about this stuff, whereas a lot of people are. And then again, it boils down to the amount of money you're facing, the amount of lobbying pressure you're facing and the willingness to say, you know, I'm going to do what's right for, for people. This is what people want at the end of the day. Well, 
I, I hope we're getting to the point where people are realizing how dangerous all this data is. I think for a long time, people were like, you know what, fine. You know, if I, I'll trade some of my personal data to Google to see some more targeted ads, if I can get free email uh, or, you know, if yeah. I can watch more YouTube yeah. videos, you know, I'm happy to do that. Give, give my data. But there's there's real world consequences for this stuff now that I think, you know, people are finally getting a hold of. One that I keep kind of beating the drum on is the fact that all this data being out there means that it's ripe for abuse and for stealing. And not just by foreign governments is bad enough, but our own government, like our own government is using it to bypass our Fourth Amendment rights to get a hold of data they would normally have no legal right to get. But now they could just buy it off the market. And and also now, certainly post Dobbs, that information can be used to put you in jail or put people you know in jail. Or, or it's talk, talk to us a little bit about some of the things that people might not be thinking about or the dangers of this data being out there. Yeah, I mean, so there's kind of like two two layers to that. Um, the first layer is, you know, things that the government wouldn't be entitled to, but for the fact that we have a weak interpretation of the Fourth Amendment in this country, where the the Supreme Court's doctrine and it, and a little bit of that has been peeled back, but it, but it's still pretty prevalent. Where if you expose your information to a private party, you willfully allowed it to be searchable by the government. And so this is why consumer privacy regulation actually has some real direct civil rights and civil liberty implications, because if the information was not available for the government to scoop up, then there's nothing there. Right. So that's layer one. Layer two is where what has happened with criminalization of abortion and in the post Dobbs world. This is this is a different realm of privacy and the fight for privacy and the need for I would say technology companies and 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 there's a market I think of you know really enhancing privacy in a way that is you know I would say resistant to a warrant. So the a criminal law gives the police and the courts of the state where it's criminalized the power to compel an enormous amount of information from a company through a warrant because like it or not it is a crime there. And so if it is a crime and they have evidence of a crime they're they're quite a, they're allowed to demand a lot from companies in furtherance of investigating a crime so the only real quick oh, can I interrupt how, how does that work in terms of just pure legal standing like if i if, if i'm apple and somebody in texas says apple here's a warrant i went to that data if apple has no and i actually i know they do actually have locations in austin so maybe this is a bad example but i mean if i don't have physical presence in that state can i just say no yeah. So for the big tech companies, the, the argument of we don't have presence in the state is is probably never going to work because just the pervasiveness of the technology, mm. you know, do you sell iPhones in the state, right? Like that, <laughs> okay. that's, all, that's pretty much all a court, that's pretty much all a prosecutor would need to prove is, you know, do they sell their products? Into if you the got state? an Apple store or whatever, then yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in, even if they didn't even have any Apple stores, I think they'd still be really hard for them to prove like that we don't, we don't, we're not subject to Texas state law, for example. And, and that's really the big tech players are, are going to have these real challenges. And there's a bill actually moving in Sacramento to um, allow some some basic resistance to requests for information. But I actually think we need to go further than that. I think what we actually need to do is make it so that, you know, actually, let me go back a step because I think it's helpful to understand. So if it's a crime uh, in a state that criminalizes abortion, they all they need is enough information to, to take to a judge in that state and say, I think this company has an evidence or information of a crime being committed, you know, i.e. a woman seeking an abortion you know, or leaving the state to seek an abortion to circumvent our criminal statute. And I believe, you know, we have reasonable suspicion that this information is, you know, held by these companies and, and held in the following ways. And that would all be basically true, right? Like, you know, if a company has your geographic information or if a company knows um, your financial transactions um, in terms of where you pay, what you paid or, you know, or your internet searches in terms of what you're looking up to look, find things, those are all reasonable prospects. We're, we're, we're kind of just uncomfortable and, un, and we're in uncharted water where many people in this country view abortion as a right and are facing states that deem it as a crime. And so if you believe it's a right, there's more of it needs to be done. And particularly what, what I would suggest, and one of the things I want to work on um, if I was selected uh, as a legislator for the East Bay is we simply just need to make it so that when they come to the companies and demand the information and the company complies because they have to, there's no information available, right? So I think what you need to start thinking about is like, how do you have true financial privacy in a way that uh, a woman can come to California, you know, obtain a procedure, pay for it, but there isn't any sort of trail or some sort of means of 
the means of, of obtaining the service is is kept secret by deletion. You know, there isn't really a way to say let's keep it secret so like it's really hard to find. No, no, no. If it's <laughs> if it's findable and there's a lawful warrant there, a company is required to turn it over. And so the, it is actually incumbent upon us to figure out how do we make it the evidence disappear for these specific issues of um, reproductive rights. And I think it's doable. I think it's doable with the right, you know, in, you know, innovation in the in the technology privacy space, as well as the right laws that regulate, you know, how long our information needs to be held by companies. You know, I think data minimization can do an enormous amount of work yeah. here. Oh yeah. So like, yeah, they hold the information for 30 days or 60 days, but you know, after that, they're required to delete it. If it's something simple like that, then if the pace of the prosecution takes longer than that window, the information's gone, and and that we should all be very comfortable with that possibility you know certainly law enforcement will have all sorts of reasons to argue against that but this, this is one of those you know times of choosing of, of mor- moral rights and you know we have to really make a point on on this issue of of reproductive rights because i think you're know, going back to my you know, kind of campaign theme about giving people power the, the power to choose when you have your kids is such an important piece of economic stability and so we take that away from people we are we are setting people up to fail and uh, that can't stand so a lot of people are really confused about HIPAA and what it does and does not cover. First of all, how does HIPAA intersect with this particular case? Does, is that data protected in any way against this sort of warrants because it's HIPAA? And second, I think where we're having a lot of problems lately is there's a lot of companies that you can give away your HIPAA rights by going to third parties that aren't covered by HIPAA. And so it's all these like drugs. I don't think I don't know if it's drugs.com, but these these websites that are third parties that are helping you find cheap drugs or find cheap medical care are not covered by HIPAA and you're and you're giving them their information. So I know that complicates matters, but help us understand what HIPAA does cover, what it doesn't cover and maybe how it applies in this case. Yeah. I mean, I think that what it is, is that we, we don't have a general privacy r- regime. So, so there is a lot of what are called sector specific privacy laws. Yeah. So HIPAA regulates uh, health providers and people within the health delivery economy, but not everything else. Uh, every, you know, so there's lots of markets that are adjacent to that, but are are not regulated by HIPAA whatsoever. And so, if you're giving information to them or they're seeking information from you know, related third parties who obtained it in other means, you know, HIPAA HIPAA just doesn't apply. And and the same is true for for a number of other privacy laws. I mean, I think the you know, a lot of financial privacy rules that exist now only apply to banks or other financial institutions, right? So they won't apply to, you know, a tech company that hand, you know, helps you manage your money in the same way. And I think that's why we have to kind of think more generalized in terms of how we establish privacy, simply because the world is a lot of silos. And those silos are, you know, those silos create loopholes. And yeah, so like a period tracking app that People might be thinking, well, that's that's got to be healthcare information. That must be protected by HIPAA. That's certainly not, and it could get you mm-hmm. in serious trouble in this case. Yeah, and that's because the app company that makes the tracker isn't regulated by HIPAA. You know, at the at the end of the day. All right, I want to switch to a slightly different topic, and that is there's another bill that's been making the rounds for years. Uh, it's called the Earn It Act, which uh, it stands oh, yeah. for Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies. It's so funny the way they come up with these retronyms. Um, but it was you know, originally proposed back in 2020, and then it came up. It's been coming back year after year, and it never made it. I think it always died in committee, but this year seems to be moving a little bit further. Can you tell us a little bit about the key provisions of this bill are and why the EFF opposes it? Yeah, so the, the Earn It Act is essentially a means of pressuring companies not to adopt encryption in their communications. And we don't really have to get more complicated than that. I mean, there's all sorts of provisions. It's, it's got a lot of uh, complicated language in it. But but ultimately, that's what it's focused on is um, leveraging Section 230, which is this lo- federal law that immunizes um, platforms and other you know c- companies from and individuals from being uh, liable for third-party content. So if I were to forge you an email that had something defamatory on it that I didn't know about, but I forwarded along to say, hey, look at this. I, I can't get sued by someone who says, well, you, you're you're in trouble for forwarding that email. Similarly, Facebook or Reddit uh, don't get in trouble for what their users do with those tools. And what the senators who continue to introduce Earn It are doing are saying, you, you lose these protections if you don't ensure 
law enforcement has means of accessing every communications that happens over your platforms, i.e. meaning don't encrypt your stuff that makes it so you yourself as a company don't know what's happening over your platforms, which is, you know, going back to what we we're talking about earlier, if we want a world where the government can't use the tech industry as a repository of all things we do on the internet, having encrypted communications is essential to getting us there. Um, because the and and the companies are trying to adopt uh, encryption, you know, system wide. It's actually in their it's it's what they want to do, and so they don't actually want to know everything that happens when we when we use their technology. They they just you know they're satisfied with knowing enough for purposes of marketing and advertising and things like that. And the problem here has always been uh, the FBI and certain law enforcement groups who you know, believe that they are entitled to know everything and anything we do, even though the, that is that is not the world that existed pre-internet. That is not the world that existed when the Fourth Amendment was originally, you know, right, written yeah. or anything. It's just the fact that they see this opportunity to leverage technology as a way to, you know, get an enormous amount of power over what people do. And, you know, I think, you know, there's plenty of good people in law enforcement, right? But there are always bad actors in these places. And so the idea of, you know, there's a bad actors in the tech companies too. I mean, there's sure. lots of good stories of, you know, people who abuse their privileges to just read into what people are doing online or checking on their, right. you know, their girlfriend or, or love interest. It's a lot of creepy stuff that happens with that kind of power. And so let's just not have it. Right. Why, why is it necessary to build an apparatus that, pro that provides that power? I don't think it is. And, um, you know, certain people in law enforcement, certain leaders in law enforcement disagree. Now I looked at this act a little bit. Um, I can't say I read the whole thing, but I, I saw I ran across something, and, and maybe I mis misinterpreted it. But I wanted to get your take on this. What what I've been seeing with a lot of this anti end end encryption stuff is what they they first come out. I mean, I, we've been fighting this for years. This goes back to the crypto wars of the nineties. Yeah. This is where PGP right. came around and that whatever. No, I thought we'd won that war, but it, it keeps coming back. And I'm sure 9-11, you know, brought a lot of this stuff back up. But, you know, initially, legislators are coming out and saying, okay, we need backdoors. And maybe they didn't call backdoors, but they were pretty explicit about it. We need to be able to break into any encryption you've got. We've got to have a key to that. We've got to have a way to get into that, which is a backdoor. And then everybody pushed back and said, no, you can't have backdoors. You can't do that. So it seems like what they're doing now is they're kind of, they're saying that they need to get it without saying backdoor. But basically what it means is it's still a backdoor. And the thing, the provision I saw on this that made me wonder is it they're going to create this this bill if enacted creates a best practices thing and then now they can feel free to update this best practice without creating a new law anytime they want and that that just seems like a blank check did, did i read that right you know you read it exactly right the idea of a best you know if law enforcement as part of the regulatory structure of earnit get to decide what's the best practice i mean we should not all be we should, none of us should be surprised when that best practice is essentially you know, what's the easiest way for us to access and tap in. Um, they're used to that with the telecom market with Kalia and right. passing Kalia, you know, basically allowed them to go to every, you know, telecom line and make it wiretap ready. And so the, um, that's the world they want to expand to, you know, all our devices and everything we do on the internet. How do we answer that question? This is a really tough question because what whenever this comes up, it's you know, think of the children. They bring up child sexual abuse. That's always sure. the, the big one, right? And it's so hard to argue against that. No one, nobody, no politician wants to vote against a bill that is going to protect against child sexual exploitation. So a lot of these things are couched that way. And obviously, it is a truly horrific thing that we want to not happen. And yet, how do you? So how do you? You're a politician. <laughs> what when someone comes to your town hall and says we got to protect the kids? What what is your answer to them when they say that we that we should be giving these guys exclusive access to our communications? Certainly, yeah. It's funny to be to be to be called a politician. Like, <laughs> let me get let me get let me get elected first, and I think it'll be fair to call me that. <laughs> um, I'm I'm just a person who's trying to help people here. Uh, you know, I think. You know, I think the, you know, I've got, and I've got kids, you know, I've got two kids or, or eight, six, and I, and I get the sensitivities. I think the realities though are law enforcement still has an enormous amount of investigative tools to go after the worst of the worst people out there. And the idea that we have to kind of surrender all of our, you know, privacy, civil liberties to, to really achieve some sort of like true perfect society is is a pipe dream that's just not that's just not how it's going to be and i think the i think the problem here is there is a an overstatement of what what will change in terms of their ability to go after the worst and the worst because they they still prosecute 
people who distribute this stuff. It isn't like there's like zero prosecutions because right. I'm using private communications. No, there's there's lots of ways you can find someone. And in fact, uh, you know, a number of civil liberty organizations have often detailed, you know, how many evidence trails and data trails exist when you don't even know the content. You know, like metadata. The, yeah, to, to really boil it down, I mean, this is about you know, seeing the content itself as somehow that's the catch-all, but it's not. There's there's enormous amount of information when when data is moved over the internet that leads a trail that is always accessible, even under an encrypted context. And that is sufficient to, you know, prosecute. I mean, one of the things that Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon you know, has proposed is like, we probably just need to enhance the resource and personnel numbers to increase prosecutions and and um, convictions, meaning we just need more people to study and analyze the data flows and the means of finding the perpetrators rather than completely radically restructure the internet and how it works. And I think that's right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Kalia, which is interesting because I, I, I was an engineer in the telecom industry for many years. So I was very familiar with this. Uh, when I worked at Nortel back in the day, it was a big deal. And so it was in 1994, the Communications Assistance and uh, for Law Enforcement Act, Kalia. And it, it's, you're right. It's, a, it's basically the ability to wiretap. But I, I think the difference here between that is back in the old days, I mean, really the old days, you would actually physically go and tap. That's why it's called a wiretap. You'd actually put, you know, a tap on the wires because in the old days, there was one-to-one -one connection of copper pair wires between, you know, between phones through, you know, switching equipment. And eventually we all became digital. But, but. It was still the ability to on a with a warrant on a particular phone for a particular period of time, you could tap one person. Whereas with end to end encryption, if if you have a method by which you could tap one person, then you by default have the ability to tap everybody. Right? Yep. That's right. That's right. You know, there's a lot of ideas that are, and then none of them are good um, from a legislative, you know, from uh, what are being shopped to legislators. Like, oh, well, you know, we can have that special key. And we'll keep it very safe, and so you know, no one will, no one will, only the good, you know, only the the good people will have mm -hmm. a special key. And the truth is, when you design a system that has a vulnerability that it can be exploited for any one person and can be exploited writ large, the key doesn't exist like it's in a, a safe in someone's room. It is just out there for anyone to discover. And so, you know, take. You know, I'd say the advances of computing technology and, and, you know, AI, I think, plays a role in this, you know, to kind of crack, crack the code, if you will. It won't be long before someone, uh, a nefarious actor, a, you know, a foreign adversary, you know, imagine what the Russians would do if they'd be able to read everything we did on, on mm -hmm. the Internet. There is there is just enormous amount of harm if we don't have secure communications. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about communications in the context of, you know, I talk to you, you talk to me, we, we share something private. Well, communications means everything. It's financial transactions. It's health data, right? It's 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 the movement of information online. A number of industries rely on encryption as a means yeah. of ensuring tight security for individuals. And you know, financial privacy is probably financial uh, encryption is probably the most important one, where you're moving, you know, things that if someone were able to kind of break it open and look in, you know, could steal all your money. So there is there's enormous amount of of security delivered through privacy. Uh, that exists beyond just our ability to talk to each other. Well, and we 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 think about you even mentioned the Russians or or whatever breaking in and getting this master key and then all of a sudden subverting our communications. But they have law enforcement too, right? And so we operate in those countries, making this available to our government where we think and we say that they're the quote unquote good guys. That that now means that China, Russia, North Korea, Afghanistan, Iran, these other countries that might want to peer into their private communications of their citizens can now go to Apple and say, well, we know you can do it because you did it for your government. Do it for us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that is um, that is a huge problem for a number of fronts, um, China in particular. I mean, you the you know there's a general philosophy in in kind of the international relations space of like if you establish you know economic ties of a country you're less likely to go to war you're mm -hmm. less likely to be hostile so there's actually been an enormous amount of emphasis by the US government to get Google and and Apple and other you know major internet companies to do business in in some of these hostile regions and the pressure that they will come when you build that vulnerability is enormous. And so either we ask these companies not to sell products there anymore and just leave writ large, which, you know, maybe they, some would, you know, as a result of that, 
but we we then start isolating and you know taking away things from you know a populace that I think would have benefited from the technology in a way that you know in an ideal world you know, leads them to a better government and a better future for for them and ultimately for all of us globally. I want to talk about one particular thing that I, that, that, that was interesting. And Apple mm. did this, or well, they they were going to do this a couple of years ago, and and because of all the blowback, dialed it back, and that was on device CSAM scanning. You know, I'll give them some credit. They they thought, you know, Apple tries to do the privacy thing right. They really thought they'd nailed this, but it, unfortunately, they didn't really talk about it ahead of time. And they just debuted it, thinking that everybody would think it was cool, and it and it wasn't. And that was putting, you know, databases of these hashes of these known images on your phone. And and the privacy aspect was this doesn't leave your phone unless, you know, actually, I think there's like 30. They had, they had a pretty high bar. It wasn't just one pick of your kid in the bathtub that was going to trigger this. It was going to be, you know, you've got multiple known images of child sexual abuse material on your phone. And then that would trigger something. And their thought was, well, it's happening on your phone. It's, you know, we're not tapping your communications. We're not breaking any communications and we're still trying to do a good thing. And yet they still got a, a lot of blowback and eventually they, they can the whole idea. Is that where we're going to end up though? Is it, is, is it going to be some, if, if we're not going to break any encryption, are they going to eventually legislate something that says, well, okay, if you're not going to let us break any, tap into your communications, then we need to be able to have something on your device. Do you think that's, you know, is it, we're going to end up with something like that as a quote unquote compromise? I think that's what gets mar- it gets marketed an awful lot as like a way not to break end end encryption, but it actually does, and and I think that is m- mostly because it renders the whole purpose of end end encryption hollow, <laughs> right? Um, and so <laughs> the idea that you can make something scan your phone and only for the bad stuff that that's a myth. It it, it scans for certain things that are you know conditions or factors that that raise the flag. But it isn't just scanning for quote unquote the bad stuff that ensures that your you know your actual private stuff that you want to keep to yourself is also being scanned. No, all of it has to be scanned in a way that makes those systems work, which then you know, and that's a matter of the technology um, mm-hmm. from a technical means. It can't it can't just only scan you know child exploitation content. It'll 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 basically just be scanning everything, and so you know at the end of the day, it's not really a compromise simply because it it if you know it does. The very thing that we're trying to prevent with with you know ubiquitous encryption in the first place, right? Yeah, I I agree. I just wanted to I wanted to get your dick on that as well. And, and what so what is it gonna, what is it going to take to get past this? We've been fighting this crypto war stuff for years, and it just keeps coming back. The same info apocalypse, you know. Bad actors keep getting trotted out. You know, think of the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, anti terrorism. You know, you've got to let us get in there to get to do this. We want. We've got to protect you. The response is always nuanced. It's so easy to trot out these, you know, really compelling cases for why we should want to do it, but it's a lot harder to argue the nuanced, you know, privacy is a human right. You know, there's there's trade-offs to be made, and this is the greater good. You know, are we going to get there? What argument is it going to take to finally put this to bed, or are we going to be fighting this for years? Oh, I think we'll be fighting it for years. <laughs> you know, I think the with every advance of technology, this this question will come up and. You know, we will have to have the debate, and I think ultimately, you know, I, I'm more of an optimist about uh, technology in the sense of the the things that let people do more. Um, you know, able to you know expand their reach more and and connect with more people in the aggregate is a good thing. And I think we sometimes miss that. I think the the debate focuses on the worst of the worst, and and these are real problems, mm-hmm. but it misses all the positive things that are that are enabled as a result of the exact same tools and at the end of the day uh, we're an imperfect society humans are are imperfect and humans are good and humans are evil and and when you connect all of us and bring us all together in the large global sense you will have a mix of outcomes and i actually just have an enormous amount of optimism that in the aggregate we all trend towards good and in the aggregate, we all benefit as a as a net outcome of of these technologies and tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So as we wrap up, let's maybe end on some positive notes. What what are what are some things that we could do to further the cause of privacy and digital rights? Is it you know more effective to vote with our wallets? At, you know, as consumers, uh, or maybe at the ballot box as citizens? I assume you're going to say both, but <laughs> what? Yeah. What what recommendations do you have for the audience who are concerned about these things and want to see change happen? What what could we do to affect that change best? Yeah, I would say probably one one versus the other. 
voting over your wallet is very difficult in this world of concentrated industries. There's just very few choices in terms of how you use the internet. You know, there's some great articles written by Motherboard and others of, you know, I try to operate without using Amazon. Uh, yeah, and I saw that. Like, it was great. It's just, it's just not possible right. for, for your average person. And to expect people to go through that kind of effort is also unfair. This is what policy is for. This is what laws are about. Laws strike the bargain of what users and people want and what industries are allowed to do. And that is, we are not at that point of the correct balance, I think, between what, what you know the industry needs in terms of being able to function, deliver products, innovate, and what users need in terms of uh, comfort with interfacing with that industry. And I think there's an enormous amount of work still to do in the privacy context in that respect. But in terms of like, you know, the ballot box, I mean, there's actually a number of states that, you know, that's actually how California's CCPA or CPRA was enacted is through a ballot initiative. Voters voted for it directly. And so I actually think there's a enormous amount of power people have still at the ballot box, despite the amount of money and influence the, the industry has over the legislative process. They don't control you, you know, as the individual. And so the more states that kind of invoke their right to privacy through you know, direct voting, uh, having people directly be able to make those decisions themselves to circumvent the, you know, the process that is, you know, jam at the legislative space, the better. And I think that is, it is proven to be successful. I think when you ask people, do they want more privacy or less, they always vote more. And I think the, from a policymaking standpoint, I think what's really important from a, from that perspective is, is to make sure we, we, we balance out the interest right and favor the consumer, but not to such a point where we um, where, where we make it so the market can't function, right? I mean, there is there is always a little bit of a balance there, but it's we're just so out of whack. I think we're a long ways before we have to recalibrate that in terms of being careful there. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I think the I think what people how people treat these issues and how they look at their legislative legislators and hold them to account for saying they're for privacy but never actually doing anything about it. Which has been a consistent story in California. You know, our our privacy laws have not come from legislators passing things. It's come from the voters themselves passing initiatives. You know, the better. And so, just I think it's it's about um, being active and involved. Well, to me, I think one of the one of the obvious wins, one of the obvious compromises that combine both of these things, actually, uh, you know, regulations that allow the market to function better, is laws around transparency. I think that's a great compromise because a lot of folks hate regulations because it, you know, they say it puts the thumb on the scales and it really screws up businesses and you know makes them jump through too many hoops. But if we, there's no transparency around privacy or security for that matter, and a lot of products that we buy today, and it's impossible for a consumer to compare you know, products A and B on any kind of a regular uh, apples to apples scale to know well this one's better than this one, so I'm gonna, I'm going to buy this one, not this one. So that is where legislation could come in to say you know you've got to publish this. I mean we did it with Energy Star, right? And when right. back when right. the appliances, which ones conserve energy better or crash testing cars, which ones are safer. And it wasn't, we did force these guys to do, well, we did put seatbelts in cars, but but a lot of this was about show the consumer which ones are better in a, in a, in a way that they can understand in a way that, that allows comparisons to be made and then let the market work. What do you, do you agree? I agree. I actually think the market is responding to privacy um, in, in a lot of ways. And, and this is where kind of the concentration issue comes up. If there's uh, an inability to be competitive in the market, then even if you're trying to do the best uh, thing for people, you know, the largest incumbent players will have means of shaping the market that are disadvantageous mm-hmm. to you, mm-hmm. you know? So I, you know, I, I, I'll give an example of, of this one company. Um, there's a company called telematics that does, you know, apps for drivers and insurance. And in that process, you know, these folks are interested in, you know, obtaining information about your driving habit simply to set a, an insurance rate. That's all mm-hmm. they want to do. And it's, it's actually very uh, beneficial to the industry to have that data. Sure. Um, yeah. And they're not interested in reselling it or anything. And so, you know, they, they are actively, you know, pursuing privacy regs and privacy rules to establish confidence in their product. And I think recognizing that by, by being privacy first, that's a selling point so that people will be willing to adopt your product because of the, what it's doing. You know, I, so, so I do think there is, there is a shift in, there are, I think two kinds of industries in the, in this space. There are ones that are trying to build by privacy by design, marketing privacy as their purpose. 
Uh, and then there's ones who are trying to figure out how to gobble up as much information as they can to squeeze out a few pennies on you know various monetization schemes. And we will be a better world if we have more of the first and less of the second You know, in that respect. One more big question that we could probably talk a whole hour about, but <laughs> it made me think about something you were saying is you're kind of alluding to maybe the companies have gotten too big, that they're almost... I, I hear antitrust and antitrust in this company used to be a big thing. Uh, and, you know, back in the twenties and the, you know, the ages when we first kind of cracked down on this, but somewhere along the line, I think it was in the eighties under Reagan, uh, we kind of changed the definition of what antitrust meant. And it had to be like a direct financial harm to the consumer. And that with a lot of free services that are collecting your data instead of money, you know, that seems to have allowed what seems to be a lot of consolidation and a lot of big companies gobbling up their competitors and not leaving us a lot of choices. Do you, what, what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. The, the severe weakness in, in antitrust law is this concept that a, what are called vertically integrated companies. So companies that when you look at a market, you have to distribution and supply and um, you know, and and retailers and kind of all the different pieces of moving a product from the creation of it to moving it to market to delivering it to people, and the courts have generally favored an integration between all those steps in the chain, which what they call vertical, as a good thing, as it makes it more efficient. If it's one company doing all those things, that that costs less money rather than mm-hmm. lots of different companies doing it. And so the internet companies, you know, take Google for example. They're very vertically integrated, right? <clears throat> Search and video and email and all these different types of services that don't necessarily directly compete with one another and all kind of augment one another. And so the courts have favored that. And that's the problem. The favoritism of vertical integration has allowed, you know, that's what allows AT&T to buy Discovery and um, Time Warner. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, uh, Time Warner. Discovery buy, bought Time Warner later from AT&T. But um, you know, it allowed Comcast to buy MBCU. It's allowed um, the the consolidation of tech in a way that gives us you know, behemoths that are um, too persuasive over the market in a way that if I was trying to start a new product and find investors, you know, they're they're hesitant to do anything that may disrupt or challenge the biggest player simply because, and this is this is documented by the uh, House Judiciary Committee in terms of the antitrust implications, you know, the largest companies will just replicate or duplicate what you're doing uh, as a means to drive you out of the market. If you don't sell yourself to them Mm -hmm. when they want to buy you. And so every small business and entrepreneur and innovator out there who comes up with a cool idea is not able to really make money from it unless they pre-design themselves to be sold or or (laughs) gobbled by the behemoth. And that's, that's really where we're at. And so, you know, shape, reshaping mergers and acquisitions this is all on the federal side, but changing how mergers and acquisitions happen to, you know, promote competition is is essential. And in fact, that was one of the bills that EFF uh, endorsed and tried to move through the congressional system. And um, you know, we moved out of the House Judiciary Committee, but we we're never able to get it to a floor vote in the House. And we also moved similar legislation in the Senate side, but similarly, we we're never able to get it to the finish line. Um, there's just an enormous amount of, of, of friction and resistance to these big changes and, and for, for good reason, right? These are big ideas and yeah. big changes to, to, you know, very major uh, economies, but it's necessary. You know, if we want to get back, I, I want to get us back to a world where the garage startup is the norm. Um, mm-hmm. You and I are old enough to remember that mm-hmm. world where, you know, every day something cool and new was happening on the internet because, you know, someone with a clever idea had a little bit of money and a little bit of resource and a computer and an internet connection and, and showed us a new cool way. And I think you're know, tying back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, a- AI as a tool enhances the reach of an individual in a way that you can have someone, you know, practically be a production studio, uh, have mm-hmm. someone be a, a many people being able to do many things with one person. And so, you know, we enhance the, you know, the opportunistic brilliance of, of individuals who, you know, as long as we have a market that allows them to exist and not just be um, eaten up before they get off the ground. All right, Ernesto, we could talk for hours and hours, uh, but we're going to, we've talked long enough. So wrapping up real quick, you know, so what, what is next for you? What's going on with your campaign? If people want to support you uh, or the issues that you're championing, even if they're not in your district, what, what do you recommend they do? 
Yeah, so just uh, ErnestoFalcone.com uh, is my campaign website. Uh, if you're in district, you know, just shoot me an email, uh, Ernesto at ErnestoFalcone.com. That is actually directly to me. And, uh, you know, let's grab coffee or, or, or chat on, a, on phone or video or whatever works for you because it's not that big of a district. It's, it's, it's fairly large from one perspective, but it only takes me, you know, give or take 20 to 25 minutes to drive in any direction to the edges of it. So we're all pretty close community and I, I see myself and I see my campaign really about connecting with people and relying on, you know, the message of, of the purpose I'm running is to give them power. And if that's what they want, um, I'm their person and I'm happy to, you know, talk to people directly and spend time with them to talk through these things. Because at the end of the day, that's the only way I'm going to win. Uh, I only win if I get people to engage and I'm not a democratic machine person. I, I'm not part of a, you know, the inside, if you will, even though I've worked in the space for a long time, you know, I, I am running this from a, from a very much of a grassroots uh, focus on the individual, focus on the people of the district um, to meet their needs where they're at and, and offer myself as a choice amongst uh, many. So yeah, ErnestoFalcone.com is the website. You can sign up there uh, or you can just shoot me an email directly at Ernesto at ErnestoFalcone.com. Fantastic. Well, best of luck to you. I wish you uh, the best of luck because we need people like you out there fighting for these principles. Thank you for that. Really glad we got Ernesto back on the show. He's a he's a really great guy. I always love talking to Ernesto, and and I'm honestly I'm really glad he's running for office. I mean, he was doing great work, of course, at the EFF, and the EFF itself has done amazing, magnificent things, and is still doing great things. But I mean, hats off running for office that that is that's a big deal. That's tough to do, and so I've got so much respect for Ernesto for doing that. I hope he wins, and I hope we get a lot more people like him into office. Actually, for our bonus content for the for the patrons this week, we kind of get into what it's like to run for office and how much time it takes and and why he's doing it and, and some of that kind of stuff. So patrons, you'll be getting that on Thursday as usual. If you want to find out more about Ernesto's campaign, whether you're actually in his region or not, just go to Ernesto's campaign website at ErnestoFalcone.com. And of course, there is a link in the show notes. If you want to hear some of our previous interviews, just go to uh, the podcast website, which you can get to from firewallsdonestopdragons.com and just search on Ernesto or Falcone and you'll find them. Also, I'd like to recommend that you think about at least setting up a personal appointment, like an in-person appointment with your local congressperson. And it doesn't have to be your federal congressperson, uh, can also be your representative in the state. Uh, there's a lot of reason to talk to your local representatives as well. They they actually have a, a direct impact on on you, maybe more so than than your federal representatives. That's what they're there for. I mean, literally, that is what they're there for. They're there to represent and listen to you, the constituent. Find an issue that you're particularly passionate about and, you know, have a little short talk with them about why you think it's important and what would you would like them to do. And they will probably give you some perspective on what, you know, what's going on in, in Congress around that issue. And, you know, maybe there isn't anything. Maybe you're bringing up something new. I've actually done this myself. It's been some time. I actually need to do it again. But I think it's important to, you know, humanize these people, understand that they're people just like you. And their job is to listen to you and try to reflect in the legislation that they either vote for or vote against, represent your interests when it comes to government matters. All right, real quick before we go, let me tell you about the Dragon Challenge Coin promotion. Again, these are really cool coins, actually. I've had a lot of people that collect challenge coins who have told me that my coin is one of the better ones they've seen. It's really quite hefty. It's about two ounces, and it looks just super cool. It is also uh, a D20 die. It's got random numbers along the edge. It's got a little nub on the back. If you set it on a flat surface and spin it, it works like a top. And when you stop with your finger, the number next to your finger is effectively your die roll. And I created a whole website, uh, d20key.com, that allows you to create secure passphrases using d20 dice. These are the kind of dice that you typically use in Dungeons & Dragons, as you might have guessed. But you can also use the coin this way as well. So it all kind of fits together nicely. So I give these out to people. Uh, who I felt have done something significant in the way of helping others to improve their security and privacy. Uh, but every once in a while, every once in a long while, it turns out, I also make them available to new patrons who, by doing this, are helping me to help other people. So this promotion will run through the end of August. 
like midnight Eastern time on the last day of August. So you got plenty of time, though that time will go quickly. So don't wait too long. And I've got 100 of these things. I've minted 100 of these coins. There are only 100 in existence. Now, these are the 2.0 coins. I also had 100 of the of the 1.0 version of the coins. I've actually still got a few of those left. I haven't decided what to do with those yet. But for anybody who becomes a new patron between now and the end of August, at the Castle Guard level or higher, will qualify to get one of these Dragon Challenge coins and also get a bit of a swag pack. So for the folks at the Castle Guard or the Knight Errant level, uh, you guys will get the swag pack with the coin of in a color of your choice, either gold, silver, or copper, and a couple really cool... Firewalls don't stop dragon stickers. But if you join at the Dragon Slayer level, I will also throw in a really cool Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons old school foam can koozie. These are actually hard to find. I had to search for a place that still made the, the old classic, you know, neoprene foam ones. I like those a lot better than the newer thin foldable ones. So you will get a really cool Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons foam koozie and also a custom designed 3D printed castle stand for your coin. Now there's one one caveat to this, and that is that international shipping is just ridiculous. So uh, I will not be able to ship swag packs to anybody outside the U.S. unless you're a Dragon Slayer level. If you if you sign up for a Dragon Slayer level, I will I will do my best to make it happen. So sorry about that. It's just I've tried in the past, and shipping internationally is just really expensive for one thing. And it's also very painful. Every country's got different rules in terms of customs forms and stuff. And a lot of, a lot of countries like in the EU will charge taxes to the people who get that stuff. So not only is it kind of painful that way, but they actually still end up having to pay money when they get it. It's, it's, it's just ugly, but nevertheless, if you do sign up a dragon slayer level, I'll figure out a way to make it happen. But there is one other option. And that is if you are going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, this August, like between August 6th and 12th or so when, uh, when I'll be there for hacker summer camp, if you'll be there, then, you know, it's possible. I can't guarantee this, but it's possible. We might actually be able to meet in person. I can deliver it to you in person. And then you could actually present your coin for a, a free drink on me right there on the spot. So obviously if you go to firewalls, don't stop you'll get all the information there. There's an article there you can read, or if you can remember this, go to fdsd.me slash promo 823, as in August of 2023. Promo 823. All right, I've got some great interviews coming up. I've uh, just recorded two interviews last week, one about artificial intelligence and one about data brokers. Those will be coming up soon. Also, I've got in the works a really cool hacker-themed interview coming up right around DEF CON. So great stuff. If you have not subscribed, go ahead and do it now. That way you won't miss any of that. Lots of great interviews coming on the pike, as always. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>